Have you ever wondered um, about the fact that what we do on Sunday morning doesn't make a lot of sense? Like, um, when you woke up this morning, you got in your car, you drove uh, here to the church, were there a lot of people on the road? Were there, was there a lot of hustle and bustle around? Or is everyone else just at home sleeping and enjoying a quiet Sunday morning? It doesn't make a lot of sense. We kind of come here, we gather, we sing. Like, who really sings anymore, right? Like, who, who gathers to sing? And then... If the singing wasn't enough, we stay a little bit longer and someone gets up and starts talking to us, starts teaching us something, and we stay. It doesn't make, make a lot of sense. Someone, some might even say it's foolish. Like, why are you guys getting up in the morning and waste? That's the only time of the week you can sleep in and you come out to church. Since the beginning, the Christian faith has always been turning heads the way it does things. And it's because the wisdom of God, which we learned a bit about last week in Daniel 2, and the wisdom of man are constantly at odds with one another. Last week we saw that the wisdom of the Babylonian wise people was in contrast and weaker than the wisdom of God shown through Daniel, the prophet. This morning I hope to show you in our passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 to 25, that Christ is the power of and wisdom of God, and he is worthy to be followed. It's okay if what we're doing seems like foolishness to the world around us, because he is worthy of being followed, and he always has been. He's okay, God is okay with the fact that the world thinks that what we're doing is foolish. In fact, you might even see this morning that it actually pleases him. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll look at verses 18 to 25 this morning before we go to the table. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 to 25 reads this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through foolishness of what was being preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is the word of the Lord. The world has always loved dividing people into two different groups from the beginning. Today we see that all around us. We're divided into two different groups, depending on what we believe or what we practice. And it was the same in the ancient world. We read a bit about it in the Bible, right? Roman or barbarian, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, and so on. We're constantly being put into two different categories, whether we like it or not. But here in our passage this morning, Paul divides people into the only category that in the end will really matter. He divides us into those who are perishing and those who are being saved. What separates these two groups? Well, it's right here in verse 18. 
For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's the message of the cross that is dividing. It's the gospel. If you divide the world into the two most important categories that there are, and in the end, the ones that will really matter, it is, it is the gospel. It is the message of the cross that is the fork in the road. It's the gospel and what we do with it that makes all the difference in the world. So the content of this message is important for every single person here. Verse 18 serves as Paul's main argument in this section of Scripture, and it goes all the way up to verse 2-5. We don't have enough time this morning to go all the way to 2-5, so that's why I've chosen to stop at verse 25. But it's the message of the cross that is the foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. In verse 19, he goes on to quote from the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 29:14. he quotes. He says, For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Why is Paul stepping aside from his argument to quote from the Old Testament? Well, he's making the point to the church that this isn't just some scheme that that God has made up on the go. This isn't something that's surprising that the cross is foolishness. This is something that God has been intending from, from the beginning. It isn't just some last minute thinking by God. It's always been his plan to use the message of the cross that is foolishness to the world to shame the wise. The cross is the fulfillment of God's plan from of old. And so then in verse 20, he starts calling people out. He's like, where's the wise person? Where's the one who's supposed to be spending all their time learning and knowing all these things and teaching us? This wasn't someone who, was, who had a biblical worldview. This wasn't someone who believed in the one true God of the Bible. This wise person of the day would have just taken one of the many competing worldviews of the day and defended it publicly. In calling out the wise person, Paul's basically saying, you've built a nice little structure there, a great little worldview, but you've missed the most important thing, the message of the cross in your worldview. You've missed it. Then he calls out the teachers of the law. These are the people who are supposed to know the Old Testament scriptures backwards and forwards. They're the the religious people. They should know this. They should know better. But they miss the wisdom of God as well. Paul is saying for them, it's right there in Isaiah. It's right there for you. Isaiah 53, one of the most uh, important scriptures in the Old Testament, verse 3 to 5, speaks right of Jesus. Listen to this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that has brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. No teacher of the law saw this. Jesus was sacrificed. He was killed in public. And they had studied this passage and they had not made this connection. Where is the wisdom of the teachers of the law? This is a warning to us. There's a way to be religious and miss the most important thing. What about the philosophers of the age? 
The word philosopher literally means debater. In ancient times, there'd be public debates where people would come from afar to come in here. What's the wisdom that's, that's going on now? What's the new thing? They couldn't just turn on their TV and follow things. They had to come and watch people debate about what was, what was cool and trendy. They were full of human wisdom, but in the end, they still left people empty and without true hope. Paul's calling them all out here and says that God has made all of your wisdom to be foolishness. None of them were teaching the message of the cross which is the power of God. And we see this in our day today, don't we, as well? Where in our politics is the wisdom of God? Where in our universities is the true wisdom and power of God? Where is our, in our entertainment the power and wisdom of God? You know, where, where's the wisdom from these people that get interviewed on CNN or Fox News or CBC? They're just babbling on, contradicting each other. Where is the wisdom of the world that leaves us hopeless and confused? All of these things, they try to promise to us that they have it together, and they don't. In the end, they all fail. It's because they're not founded on the message of the cross. Generation after generation of supposed wise people have come forward trying to tell us that they've figured out what's going on in this world. They've tried to save themselves and us, but in the end, it always ends in failure. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. So Paul goes on in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. This is an interesting statement. There's not too many places in the Bible, is there, where it actually says, this pleases God. There's something that actually makes him happy. Do you want to know what pleases God? Well, it's right here in our text. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. The foolishness that's being preached, it's the, it's the cross. Saving people through the message of the, the cross pleases God. It makes him happy. God loves the gospel. He's not indifferent to it. We're so, we're so used to it that we become indifferent to it. Yet God, it pleases him. The gospel pleases him. The message of the cross pleases him to save you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are saved by the cross, and that pleases him. This morning, if you're here and you believe this message, even though it's foolishness in the eyes of the world, it pleases God. He takes delight in the fact that he saved you. And he takes specific delight that he saved you through that message, the message of the cross. He didn't save you because of your wisdom. And see, we've already mentioned, it's not that we're a bunch of smart people that plant a church. She used the word stupid. <laughs> In the eyes of the world, maybe that's what we are. He didn't choose you or he didn't save you because you figured out some riddle or you found some code in the Bible and worked it all out. He, pleased you. He, he was pleased to save you through the foolishness of the message of the cross. In verse 22, Paul divides the, these, um, the group of people that are perishing into two groups. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look to wisdom. So the Jews who demand signs, think back to the Gospels, Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. Did they ever ask him for a sign? 
Well, yeah, many times. Matthew 12, 38, for example. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Why did they ask for a sign? It's because they're like thinking, well, if he shows us a sign, we're going to believe him. We're going to worship him. Oh, he wants this sign, and then we'll believe Jesus. Is that what they're thinking? Well, no. Jesus performed many signs during his time on earth. He fed 5,000, two, uh, two fish and five loaves. He healed people. He turned water into wine at the wedding. These were all publicly done. So they've asked for signs. He gave many signs. But did it, did it please them? Was that enough for them? Well, maybe for some, yes, but for most, the signs weren't enough. D.A. Carson, in his book, The Cross and Christian Ministry, suggests that in demanding the signs, the religious leaders were simply trying to make themselves the authority rather than submitting to Jesus' authority. They were putting themselves in the superior position. They were sitting back as the position of the judge and saying, well, well show us a sign, Jesus. Let it, show us something that will make us, the religious leaders and rulers, happy with what, what you're doing, what you're meddling around with. Carson says, as long as they are checking out his credentials, they are forgetting that it is God who will one day weigh them. And it isn't just first century Jews that were guilty of demanding signs from Jesus. We, we can be guilty of that ourselves. Some of us, maybe even sitting in this room this morning, may have said things at some point in our life, God, if you'll just do this for me, then I'll believe you. Then I'll do this. Then I'll do this or that. God, if I get this promotion that I want at work, oh, that I'm just going to follow you. I'm going to just tithe. I'm going to do all these things, Lord, if I get this promotion. Or if you, if you heal this sickness or this ailment that I have, Lord, then you show me that sign, then I'll, I'll really believe you. Or if you can just sort out my marriage, then, Lord, I'll, I'll follow you. We're just as bad. We're looking for signs. We're thinking that Jesus is only faithful if he does the things that we're asking him to do. We're making Jesus out to be our genie rather than him taking his rightful place as Lord. In addition to the Jews seeking signs, he says that Greeks look to wisdom. Much like the Jews who are taking the authority over Jesus um, by asking for a sign, they just want someone who will answer all their questions. So again, they sit back and they say, well, Jesus, if, he, if you guys can answer this about what I, what I think, then, then maybe I'll follow. We're just like that today, though, too, aren't we, as well? You might yourself have done this. You might have a friend who, or family member who you're dealing with who asks a question about Jesus, and then the question's answered. And do they believe? Well, no, because there's also the six or seven or eight or nine or ten other questions that they want answered. And if those six or seven or eight or nine questions are answered, then will they believe? Well, no, because then there's just more that they want. They're sitting in authority over Jesus. In both cases, whether the Jew or the Greek, they're wanting to make themselves God. They're putting Jesus on the stand. And on this, in this courtroom, they're the prosecutors and they're the judge. And what are we supposed to do now as followers of Jesus in this courtroom? Do we become his defense attorney? Is that what Paul tells us to do? No, let's look at verse 23. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. 
We're not Jesus' defense lawyer. We just preach Christ crucified. God has plenty of signs, plenty of wisdom, but this is what he puts on offer for the world. Christ crucified. We can get so used to hearing that term that it loses all meaning, doesn't it? Think about it for a second. Christ crucified. Christ, meaning Messiah. The title evokes images of power, of splendor, of triumph. And then on the other hand, crucified. Crucifixion means weakness. It means humiliation. And it means defeat. Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. No wonder it's a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Preaching an executed Messiah makes absolutely no sense unless verse 24, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. Christ crucified a stumbling block to some and foolishness to others, but to those whom God a whole different story. The sentence right there is just bursting with massive, life-changing truths. Everything changes for the person for whom God has called. This isn't just a hopeful call of God, hoping that some will respond. It's not just sitting there saying, I hope people will respond to my call. When God calls it, it's an, an effectual call. The verse says that if you are called, Christ becomes the power and wisdom of God. Think to Paul writing elsewhere in Romans 8, 29 and 30. He writes, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And watch this chain here. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. God's call is just one part of the process of salvation for his people. From before time, if you are in Christ, he predestined you, it says in Romans, to be conformed to the image of his son. This will happen. If you are predestined, you're also called. If you're called, you're also justified. There's no one that's called by God who's not also justified before God. And those who he justified then, if you were justified standing right before God because of Christ, you will also be glorified. You'll also be with Christ forever and ever. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. If you are called by God, now it's human wisdom that looks foolishness, like foolishness. We don't demand signs from God because we have received the greatest sign, Christ, the power and wisdom of God. The words power and wisdom, they're chosen here specifically. Paul didn't just grab from a, a grab bag of words that describe God and said power and wisdom. These words were chosen specifically. The Jews demand signs. Well, here's the sign. Christ is the power of God. There's no greater sign than Christ rising from the dead. The Gentiles love wisdom. Well, Jesus is the wisdom of God. 
He is the wisdom of God that perplexes the wisdom of this age. Christ, the power and wisdom of God, he's worthy to be followed. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. In reality, you know, God, is, there's no foolishness or weakness in him. He is, it's just that he's so much greater than, than human wisdom that anything that would be considered fool, the foolishness of God is, is greater than whatever man can offer in his wisdom. God has no foolishness or weakness, but when Jesus hung on the cross, it seemed to the world as if Christ was foolish or weak. This is the very central thing of our faith, to the world that looks foolish and weak. It's the thing we are going to remember at the table this morning. But at that very moment that Jesus died, he struck a massive blow against his enemies. Because as we know, death could not hold on to him. Three days later, he rose triumphantly, defeating sin and death. Christ is not weakness and foolishness as the world wants him to be. He's the power and wisdom of God. And it's through the cross that he saved those who will believe. And so before we go to the table, each one of us this morning has to make a decision about Christ. Is he foolishness or is he wisdom? There might be some of you here this morning who have never yet taken the opportunity to trust Christ on your own. You might agree with what I was saying at the beginning. It is foolishness. Jamie, I did drive to the church and there was barely anyone else on the road. Maybe I would have been better served staying home and sleeping in. You might think Christianity is just some religion for people from bygone eras, has no relevance to, to, the, to the people today. That might be what some, of, some people think. But let me ask, does, does the secular worldview that's being exposed out there by, by our culture make good sense of the world? Does it satisfy? As our culture moves further and further away from Jesus, is it getting things right now? Do things seem better? Or is it losing itself? Is it built on a foundation that's crumbling right beneath its feet? The message of the cross says that Jesus loves you. He died to pay that price that you could never pay on your own. We're stumbling around trying to sort things out. We don't have it together. We do things that even we don't agree with. Our own law, we do things, let alone God's law. We constantly let ourselves down. We're weak and we're broken. Yet Jesus says, come to me. I will take all of your burdens upon me and I will take them to the cross and I will pay for them and I will die in your place so that you can truly live. It pleased God through the foolishness of the cross to save those who will believe. And so this morning, I just ask you, you only have, we only have two options when it comes to Jesus. Either he's weakness and foolishness or he's power and he's wisdom. But to those of you who are, who are believers, who have already placed your trust in Christ, let me ask you, are you building your life upon Christ crucified? Or are you building it upon the wisdom of this age? You might say, yeah, Jamie, I've trusted in Christ, I believe in him, that's my religious box. 
But Monday to Saturday, would your neighbors know that there's something different? I think that family, they're building their lives upon Christ. This week in our life groups, I hope that you'll dig a little deeper into the question of what a life built upon the foundation of Christ really looks like. You can do that around your table with your families as well. But for our life groups, we'll be sending out questions to really dig in. What does it look like to be a believer that lives their life on the foundation of Christ? But my plea to everyone this morning is just come to Jesus today. Build your life upon his foundation, upon Christ crucified. Allow him to hold you fast through whatever will come your way. This morning we will be going uh, to the table together. Christ in his wisdom gave this to the church so that we would keep the message of the cross central to the life of the church, that we would do this regularly, that we wouldn't, wouldn't go for years and years without talking about the cross, but that we would do it at regularly as we meet. And so let's just take a moment right now, reflect on the message quietly for a second, and prepare your hearts for the table. Let's just take a minute of quiet reflection. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We praise you this morning for your grace that was displayed to us on the cross. That cross where you made foolish the wisdom of the world. Lord, it was at your cross that you were made to anguish so that we might be brought joy. It was at the cross that you were cast off that we might be brought in. It was at the cross where you were trodden down as an enemy so that we might be welcomed in as a friend. It was at the cross where you surrendered to hell's worst so that we might experience heaven's best. It was at your cross that you were wounded that we might be healed. You were made thirsty so that we might drink. You were tormented so that we might be comforted. You were made a shame that we might inherit glory and you entered darkness that we might have eternal light. We thank you and we praise you for the cross this morning. And now as we go to the table where we remember your sacrifice, may it cause our hearts to experience your love for us in a fresh and life-giving way this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, yeah, and just my encouragement to you, uh, as you're going out this week, like, lay your, your foundation on the wisdom of God. The world's going to try to tell you it knows what's going on, but it, really it's foolishness. Christ is the power and wisdom of God. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and throughout the week. Amen.